Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development Speaker Series podcast. I am Ana Alvarez, and this week we are joined by Tara Bishwanath, Paul Andres Corral Rodas, and Daniel Gerson Mahler from the World Bank Poverty and Equity Global Practice. I'm sitting down with them after their appearance at the CID Speaker Series event on fragility and conflict on the front lines of the fight against poverty on April 23rd, 2021. Welcome Tara, Paul and Daniel, and thank you for joining us. As background for our audience, the book we're discussing today examines the reasons and implications of the increased concentration of extreme poverty in countries in fragile and conflict-affected situations. The book invites us to think about the fight against poverty from a different perspective by, by analyzing the long-term consequences of conflict and discusses opportunities for tailored policy interventions. The book starts by stating that if current demographic trends continue, by the end of 2020, the majority of the world's extremely poor people will live in FCS. Could you tell us what are you considering as a country or region in fragile and conflict-affected situations, and what are the reasons why extreme poverty has been concentrating around these regions or countries? Uh, thank you for that question, Anna, and pleasure to, to join this podcast. So the World Bank has uh, an annual list of countries that it classifies uh, as what we call FCS, so in, in fragility or conflict-affected situations. And it's based on, on various uh, data sources and criteria. So it's based on, for example, the number of battle deaths that the country had in the past year. It's based on whether there is a UN peacekeeping operation in the country. It's, it's based on uh, uh, kind of governance score, uh, sort of the quality of institutions in the country. And all, all of this is available uh, online, but sort of if a country meets certain criteria, then it would be classified as a, as a country in, in, in a fragility or conflict. On the second part uh, of your question, so I, I mean, it's twofold. Uh, so, so that's the, the part on why is poverty concentrated there. On, on the one hand, we've seen uh, impressive poverty reductions in many countries not impacted by conflict or fragility, such as the situation in China since 1990. Uh, on the other hand, countries in conflict and fragility have often seen a stagnation or an increase in, in poverty, partially because of the, of the conflict situations there. Perhaps, Tara, you want to add? Yeah, so the reason they're co concentrated is, as I said at the beginning of the talk, right? Basically, uh, countries that have the right policy environment, right? The countries that have unleashed policies that to grow in an inclusive manner, create jobs, right? Uh, they have, they, they've, they've advanced pretty rapidly, right? In, in poverty reduction, right? Um, you know, the countries like India, you know, uh, opened up for trade in 1991, undertook huge reforms that primarily boosted their growth, not, not just growth, but also the uh, creation of jobs, right? If you look at these markers in large countries like India and China, and there are many, many others, right? I can name Indonesia at a certain point in time. So what you're saying globally, when we count extreme poverty the way we do, the residual, right? The part, the, the, the countries that have had difficulty, right? The countries that have weak institutions have had political volatility, right? The mix of things that Daniel talked about, which is also subnational conflict, right? Conflicts, no, after World War II, you're not seeing interstate conflict that much, right? 
we haven't seen major wars. But what are you seeing? A lot of civil conflict, right? Like subnational conflict in Nigeria, it's in these northern areas, the Boko Haram conflict, the, the in, in, in other parts of the world, right? Somalia, all of them have taken a different character, right? And that's uh, leading to uh, the dynamics, right? The, 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 the environment is not conducive to the kinds of things that help improve welfare, right? Service delivery is difficult and these sorts of things affect them. In, in important ways, right? So I'm not, you know, so what we have left with now in terms of this global challenge of reducing the dollar 90 a day poverty is this, like he said, 10%, right, of the world's population are in these countries classified as fragile and conflict affected, but a big chunk of the, the remaining challenge in poverty reduction are sitting there. Right in those places, so it's it's now the institutions like these, right, like the bank, have to find a way to navigate these difficult circumstances and find a way to figure out to what extent economic policy can help, you know, improve the lives of people. Thank you, Taran Daniel. That's very insightful. I'm sure that gathering all this data may be difficult, particularly for conflicted uh, regions. So can you tell us how were you able to overcome this challenge for the book and get accurate insights uh, on poverty dynamics? So that's a big question. <laughs> we just had that, that whole discussion last week and the week before. Uh, so, so let's take an extreme context like Yemen, right? I purposely want to bring a concrete example, right? So there, we haven't had a survey, right? Uh, since the country went into this, right? For the past nearly a decade, they're roiling in this and you can't do these face-to-face -face surveys, right? In, you can't do this. The country is in famine-like situation right now with a galloping inflation and a currency crisis on top of what started a while ago, right? So the, the kind of, we were also rethinking the way we think of data, right? Poverty data normally, right? Depends on a very detailed understanding of what people consume, what they spend consuming it, right? Including non-food, right? It's a combination of a very detailed account of food and non-food because income measure in a lot of developing countries is not very reliable, right? So we go through understanding to be able to, this sort of consumption data, to be able to see, okay, what is a minimum threshold for getting enough calories, which is the food part, the non-food part is a basic living, right? Housing, clothing, etc., and shelter, right? I mean, that is housing. So I think we, we create this index, right? Which we call a poverty measure, and then translate it into what is the money that you would require right that's i want to say this as a backdrop now that kind of data is going to be typically hard so in nigeria we collected this for the, all the country but for places like borno which is affected by conflict we couldn't so all our insights in nigeria are not covering that state very well right we don't have a representative sample this is the backdrop and that's true in somalia that's true in south sudan i can go on and on so so what we're now thinking is look let, maybe we don't have this measure of poverty right, in this detailed way. But in Yemen, what we're doing is piggybacking on the World Food Program, right? They monitor food 
access to food, right? They have a food security index. So what we've done is in each monthly phone round, we're adding simple questions related to health, right? So we're not worrying about the traditional measure, but we're more worried about getting data that is frequent and monitored well on phone, right? On mobile or phone. And basically we're using it to inform what we do with other partners to improve that, right? Whether it's delivery of food and other things. So I'm saying this purposely because we cannot expect all countries to have that kind of data which we described in, in the presentation, right? In other cases, if it's a small part of the country that is not, uh, you know, uh, affect, is affected by conflict, small but important, Nigeria, what we're doing is using analytic methods to infer what it might be. More recently in Nigeria and many other places, we use satellite data to create poverty maps, okay? So we use proxies like, you know, basically roof, the, the quality of roof, everything I can see from stratosphere that are very important correlates of poverty, we use them to draw, a, you know, to map out areas that are uh, more poor or less poor by that yardstick. And in places where we have, real data, we actually validate them. We sort of say, okay, you know, are we roughly getting this right, right? Are these spatial proxies picking up, right? And I, in Nigeria, we did that for the rest of the country, it came out really well. So we believe the Borno poverty map a little bit, right? Because we don't know. So what I'm trying to say is today's world is giving us a lot of opportunity to say, okay, pictures from satellite images are, we let's use all of this different sorts of data and Take, you know, knowing something is better than knowing nothing, right? So let's use, 15 years ago, this was not possible. Today, there's more doors opening in terms of adding these sorts of images. We've got very good climate data. Right now I'm exploring, can I predict yield failure to see if Nigeria's food security can be, can be predicted and can that be useful, right? To avert hunger. Uh, they're similarly thinking in Yemen. So I think, the bottom line here is, this is how we have to deal with it. Try and reframe the question of poverty to help the policy and also use this sort of satellite imagery and other things to kind of get a sense of this, at least for the policy side, right? When it comes to this thing that Daniel's, you know, presented the, on counting the global poor, the yardstick, you know, filling that gap is a different issue. We'll have to wait for the country or use analytic methods to predict or improve these things. And that's usually imperfect, but that's what we did in the report, right? Tried our best to back out. But for policy, I think we have to be a bit more careful and get a little bit more information that helps us target aid. That's very interesting. It for sure requires a very creative and innovative way of, of thinking. Uh, the book also mentions that poverty in FDS may involve simultaneous deprivations in multiple dimensions, which go beyond monetary poverty. How does poverty differ from the one observing a FSC country to poverty observing a country without conflict? And what does this imply for designing appropriate intervention strategies? It's a complex question now, because in reality, like the report alludes to, it's very hard for us to have detailed information on what the profile of the poor in a given FCS country looks like. No? Uh, but we have certain knowledge and, and we know that in these countries, 
services aren't being delivered, funds are, aren't necessarily targeted to where it's needed the most. And so it's very likely that basic necessities and a hierarchy of needs type of structure aren't being met. The issue here is that in these countries, it's not just that you're destroying things right now. No, you, you may lose a bridge, you may, you may, a school may be destroyed and these type of things, but this has long run implications, right? Children in these school, in, in these areas aren't going to be well-fed. They aren't going to be going to school. They're likely not going to have he, uh, medical checkups. And this will create a perpetu or perpetuate poverty in the long run, because without learning, without health, they're not going to be able to accumulate human capital. Also, because the country situation may be, may be, uh, may be quite drastically economically affected. No? Many of these countries also, what, what, what has occurred in the past and what has been observed is that there are these economic shocks that often, often pollute some of these, these, uh, these, uh, these conflicts. What you will have is also that parents lose the confidence to invest in the human capital accumulation of their children. And so this continues perpetuating a circle. So any deviation from the, from the trend will actually push people into what we normally call a poverty trap, where it's very difficult to escape without an external shock. And that is the role that we try to play sometimes as the World Bank, where we try to be that external shock that hopefully helps lift these people out of that poverty trap. Thanks, Paul. So now we understand uh, the shared characteristics in FCS, we must acknowledge that there may be great heterogeneity across and within them. The book also develops a typology that reflects the diversity in FCS. Could you walk us through this typology and could you explain how can this framework support decision makers in tailoring solutions for addressing poverty? So let me start quickly, Paul, just to give a broad frame and then go on, huh? because this is one of the things that... So first, I want to make clear that the World Bank, as Daniel said, right? The, um, uh, the World Bank has a cri criteria it releases every year, right? That frame classification of countries as fragile and non-fragile, right? So like he said, battle debts, a UN peacekeeping force, and a few of the governance, right? Uh, some proxies that give us a sense of weak governance, right? Broadly different. Um, the, 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 so they have to do that, right? Because as an institution, we have to, there are particular reasons to classify, you know, what countries fall under this, because you also have important ways in which, you know, the, the lending and, you know, these sorts of programs are, are you know, met in, in some of these. So it's important. Now, in the intellectual space, what we did in chapter four, if you look at the book, is literally took all the global data sets we could find on a myriad of different concrete indicators of governance, right? Uh, which, which deals with voice and accountability, right? And many other attributes, if you go to that chapter four, and we used battle debts, right? We did it more rigorously. We used a technique, right? Like uh, Paul said in the, in the thing, clustering analysis. And we, the whole objective of that was to say, you know, there are 10, 12 things, some of which we don't have data, okay? I can think of many more things that make a country fragile or, con you know, uh, FCS, right? As we put it. But we used all of the global data that we could, right? At the country level, and we used techniques that very naturally 
narrow down these dimensions of risk depending on what the country is because each country has a data point on those specific things, right? And that doesn't necessarily match with the bank's list, right? Uh, the, 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 so, so, so this was a more intellectual exercise, broadly to make the point that fragility is such an obscure abstract concept, right? For instance, COVID, I think has made the entire world fragile, right? We stopped production, uh, you know, employment more than halved, wherever you look, right? Starting with the richest country in the world where we're all living right now. So, so I, and food insecure. So, you know, you can see, you know, what a shock can do. And this is a generational moment we're in now, right? Where, where we're all seeing even countries that were not fragile, there are fragilities that have been introduced, right? In the macro front in many places and, you know, in, in this whole gamut of things that happened last year, right? So similarly, there are countries like other, there are many other examples of countries which are, can go in and out of fragility, right? They, can, they could have been fragile last year, they may be fine now. So they're all a function of policy, but the more important thing for us, if we want to you know, entertain the hope of prevention, right? Can we prevent fragility and conflict is to identify first, what does fragility mean in Afghanistan? What are the three things or four things that dominate? What are the risk, dominant risks versus Somalia? I know they're not different. Paul talked about Tolstoy, right? Each unhappy family is unhappy for some other reason. So, so this is why at the country level, the hope in chapter four was to identify, can I narrow down these risks within at least the known set of things for which I have data so we can actually do that at the country level, right? Sort of monitor this in the hope that we can prevent. So that's the broad uh, way in which we clustered it, right? Now that whole process can be improved dramatically and we can, if we get more granular data, if we, we if we're able to use spatial analytics with satellite information, that gives me a lot of stuff in a more, at, not at the country level, but below, right? At the level of a two kilometer grid. I mean, some of the satellite imagery is very, very detailed, right? on yields, on, on, on climate, on, on all of these things we know that can compound fragility. So that's a big challenge for everybody down the road, including all of you who are students, right? Well, if you're interested in this topic, what are the ways in which we have to advance on the thinking side? But basically we made just a little beginning to say we need to do this because if we don't do this, we'll never be able to understand what to do, what data, how to monitor, how to prevent, all of that. I, I think you made excellent points, Tara. Uh, there's a, I mean, the use that we see of, of such, a, such a grouping is that it allows you to see that in every, every one of the groupings, there are FCS classified economies, no? And they're different in their own ways. What we think is that basically what allows you to, to to intervene or to have an, uh, a design for how to intervene is basically the markers of, of fragility. No? So if, if, if you're, for example, in, 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 in one of those groupings where we see high homicide rates, and you know that this is eventually going to push towards more conflict in, and, and fragility in that, in, that, uh, in that society, well, you, you can start thinking of interventions that can actually address the root cause of those, of those, uh, of those high homicide rates. No? Uh, for, for places where you see that natural, high natural resources are an issue because basically 
there is there is a lack of voice and and people are not partaking enough into the resource into the rents from those natural resources then the bank tries to intervene and you can see how you can make sure that those rents are are distributed in an equitable manner so that everybody enjoys the fruits from from those natural resource rents and so that that is the the goal no the idea is that basically if you have one marker and you have another uh, then basically you can start thinking of how you can intervene. Now, we by no means were saying that this is how you can predict conflict. No, because I mean, in reality, it's very difficult to, to, to predict human behavior, right? And a lot of these things are just outliers, which makes them impossible to identify, very difficult to identify. And so you're not going to predict conflict perfectly, but at least if you know what you should be looking out for that could lead to a, to a combustible situation, that's what you want to go after. That if the, the, the situation is such that any small trigger from outside or from inside may actually lead to a full-blown conflict, right? And so that is what you're trying to, to have a sense of. And I think as we move forward, with, with more data collected and more, tech, more and newer techniques being used, I think we can arrive to that. But I don't think we can ever actually properly account for the fact that there will be someone who will come and, uh, and shoot Franz Ferdinand. Thank you, uh, Tara and Paul. So finally, as you have mentioned, support to FCC's needs uh, to be tailored, innovative, and focused on the drivers of fragility and factors of resilience. Nevertheless, from your perspective, should FCS start implementing policies to address poverty at a particular point in time, or are there any immediate actions that FCS should implement in order to try to mitigate long-term consequences of conflict on human capital and well-being? Well, my gut answer here is you have to think of early markers, right? I mean, uh, reducing poverty is a very, you know, it's complex, right? In all its dimensions, right? We talked about it. But to me, for me today, the food security issue, right? When I look around and I look at Yemen, I look at parts of Nigeria, I mean, which has been exacerbated, right? By COVID, right? All the aftermath of that uh, is the prim primary objective. The reason it's very important to measure, monitor and target is what you heard, right? these long-term impacts with food insecurity, persistent hunger, you're going to affect uh, many things. And for young kids, especially, you're going to leave them with a lifelong right, impact. And if you look at that literature, it even lactating mothers, right? Pregnant mothers, it affects the child in the womb. That's, that's another piece of evidence that is coming out now. So I think the whole, way in which you can set back, right? Welfare for a generation, right? And I'm talking deliberately right now because that's really coming up now as a, as a part of this COVID conversation, much worse for countries like Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, parts of Nigeria. They're on the map right now. Yesterday I had a, you know, there was a discussion with COVID. Somebody asked, I mean, so with WFP, World Food Programme, there is a concern, right, that humanitarian support may not be able to expand this program. So that is why I'm saying food security, these early markers, I, that is a known fact, right? 
The other big risk now, and I'm just, and that happens to be part of the FCS context, children close to conflict don't attend school or are erratic for all sorts of safety reasons. Now COVID, what does it expose? We all close school everywhere, right? And there are, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that learning impacts, if you don't take remedial action, right? Even in the US, the current debate is when schools open, if you don't adjust the curriculum and learning uh, you know, losses that were experienced with nine months of school closure, particularly for primary school, right? Who can't, you can't, you know, and for countries like Nigeria and other developing countries where there's no remote learning and these are all learning losses, um, you know, parents are telling us, you know, we, we did a survey and they're saying, increase the hours of school when the school's open and adjust your curriculum because these learning losses are going to slow down your learning process for life. Right? And we all understand the connection between learning loss, productivity, right? loss of ability to get great employment as you grow older. We know that chain, right? We know how that goes. At least there's lots of evidence for that. So I think I'm purposely focusing this, right? In, you know, poverty, and poverty eventually will be better if these things can be addressed. And COVID has laid that bare for you, at least on these two dimensions, that are very critical ingredients of whether you can escape poverty or not, right? Better health, better sustenance, better food, better health, and better learning, right? Those are the ingredients of what help you, right? From an individual point of view. So for me, that, 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 that you have to address these things. And I think we are now in a situation where even non-FCS countries are asking these questions. The only difference here is that they're coming from a better place, some countries before COVID. So they probably will have the resources, the institutional capacity, right? To get back and do this. For countries that are, you know, went into this crisis of COVID with fragility and conflict already looming, right? It's, it's, it's very, very, worrisome, right, to cater. So in fact, the, last week, there was a whole discussion around Yemen, right? Asking, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna do this? How do we, you know, uh, stabilize inflation? What do we do? You know, all of that. So it's a very daunting problem, but uh, it's one of those things where, you know, you have to act quickly and know how to do, you know, try the simple things that are of primacy. And to me, these are the two very good examples of that. Thank you, Tara. Uh, and thank you for your work on this topic because it's really important. This is, this is a very insightful book that highlights the need to look at the most crucial issues in the developing world with a different lens. What are the future areas of research that your team is working on then? Yes. Many, many, many things. There's a lot we don't know. So one of the things that we are looking at is this very thing we talked about, right? How do we innovate on the data and data analytics side, right? To, 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 to put those sorts of urgencies out, right? What are we really talking about when we say, you know, poverty, you know, quantifying some of the impact of FCS, right? So that's one big part that we're doing. The other big part we're doing is also, uh, you know, basically looking at 
data methods, right? So what is the data we should collect? If a country is in conflict, should we just walk away? Is there other ways? Now, during COVID, about a 70 plus countries, we did monthly mobile surveys. These included some FCV countries, the mobile surveys where we were taking the pulse, right, of the economic and health impacts of COVID. So we're learning a lot that maybe, you know, there are ways in which we can design and, you know, collect information that we can monitor some of these places. The other thing I mentioned was the satellite, you know, the, the, the very, what are the analytic ways, pathways to use some of this other data complemented by, uh, you know, survey data at the how, about for individuals and households, how can we deepen our understanding of this topic through those means, right? The other part that I think we partner sometimes with other uh, academic institutions and uh, agencies and you know, development economists is experiments, right? Running experiments of ways in which we think interventions can actually help reduce uh, you know, the, potential, the, the potentially conflict uh, you know, exacerbating things. We are, we are more and more thinking a little bit about how social protection sort of can do it or not and how you target. We've done some experiments around people, you know, do no harm that Nandini brought up, right? So that if there's a lot of ethnic based conflict in countries, just taking poverty as a way to target people for aid or, or transfers, could lead to more conflict because uh, these are, you know, there's a lot of underlying a lot of things for uh, with ethnicity is, you know, also other triggers, right, of why they why there's conflict at the subnational level. So we're trying to see if we want to do a public works program of cash transfers, can we do a lottery randomly? People understand fate and lottery, right? Can we just say, okay, we're 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 selecting some people. We're going to do this at the next phase. We're going to Again, select. So when, you know, getting away from things that could exacerbate, that's just a small example that was discussed a few weeks ago. Can this be a better way in some of these places? Also simpler way, right, to do, to help people. So these are the kind of things that we're engaging in, constantly learning. And we're also interested in looking at, you know, how can we improve the way we measure fragility, so it sounds so abstract. So one of the focus areas now is climate, right? We're wondering if there is a very much stronger and concrete way we can look at the nexus between climate, uh, well, you know, productivity, income, conflict, right? How can we make a connection there and see if there's a way in which we can think of an agricultural intervention, productivity, for productivity, the adaptation side, uh, to, to for, and as well as on the welfare side. So that's a big part of uh, the, the current, you know, overlap on, you know, giving fragility a little bit of a concrete meaning and saying, let's look at a climate-induced fragility and see if that can give us more concrete answers on the ways we tackle it. Anyway, um, you know, Daniel, Paul, any additions? I'm just, you know. Uh, one, one thing to add, perhaps building on what Tara said, um, has a slightly more conceptual tweak is still improving our understanding of, of what it means to measure poverty and ill-being in, in situations of conflict and fragility. So as, as we mentioned before in, in, in your previous question, you know, the, 
refugees suffer from from multiple dimensions. They have traumas. They they might have health repercussions of of um, of conflict. They might lack access to basic infrastructure. And the monetary project will capture some elements. It doesn't capture everything. And and for the prioritization of the of the worst off both within countries and between countries we we need a, a proper and suitable measure of ill-being um of people that suffer but for people that suffer from conflict or, or fragility and and just getting getting a better understanding and sort of evolving a bit this the conceptual thinking of what it really means to be poor uh, or in these settings is something that that's crucial to that end yeah, the whole nexus between mental health, right, where the bank necessarily may not have the expertise, but I think definitely acknowledging those non-income dimensions beyond even education and health is something we've tried to at least introduce in surveys, but these are very important aspects of, like Daniel said, right? I mean, the big question is how is measuring poverty in a monetary way for refugees and other you know, people who are fleeing conflict, right? If you ask that question, monetary poverty is really not necessarily the center, right? You have to think a little bit of, they lost all, they, they left all their assets, ran to another place, uh, how dramatically their asset, you know, situation has changed. They have nothing, right? And they're in, as refugees are in foreign lands, you know, so their status, you know, changes. Status is a very important part of accessing things that influence your well-being, right? If I'm if I'm in a country where I'm an asylum seeker or a refugee, it's a big difference, right? I mean, I can't access even the basic things that technically, right? I may not have the uh, the the you know credentials to do it, right? So this is a, a, a concrete way of seeing why some of these things are, you know, monetary poverty doesn't put any weight to right now, right? So we're trying to expand, as Cam Daniel said, actually bring to the fore, are the, how do we capture these things? That sounds very interesting and we look forward to hearing more about this project. Thanks to Tara, Paul and Daniel for taking the time to speak with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development, Research and Upcoming Events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you back next week.